This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is for you to gain greater insight into the challenges and rewards of the Chief Business Officer role. Find out more from today's episode at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Megan Strand, your host for today, and I'm honored to be joined today by Gerald Whittington, who is Senior Vice President for Business, Finance, and Technology at Elon University. Welcome, Gerald. Thank you, Megan. Glad to be here. You've been at Elon since 1992, which is an impressive tenure. But to kick off our conversation today, I was hoping you could tell us the story about how you landed there and higher ed in general. I uh, started in this uh, career um, as a freshman in college. The year was 1968. It was full of uh, uh, lots of drama, the Vietnam War, and uh, a presidential election. And during that presidential election between uh, Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey, Mr. Nixon said, I can deal with all this campus radicalism that's on the on the campus by doing one thing. And if you elect me, I'll deal with campus radicalism for the nation. And that one thing was that he would instruct his Department of Education to not spend the money that Congress had allocated for financial aid to students. And boy, that would uh, really cure the campus radicalism very quickly uh, if all of those students who did have financial aid no longer had it. I was one of those students who received a letter in the early uh, spring of uh, 1969 after Mr. Nixon took office that said, dear former scholarship holder. And uh, I went, what? Uh, They said, remember that scholarship you used to have? Well, you don't have it anymore because Congress has uh, not funded it or Congress has funded it, but the president has not dispersed the funds. And so good luck with that. Wow. And so I did, because it was the 60s, man, uh, I did everything you were supposed to do by <laughs> protesting and that sort of thing. And I went to see my, um, my RA, who didn't have a clue, and I worked my way up through the uh, director of financial aid at my undergraduate institution, didn't have a clue. And ultimately, I found myself sitting across the desk from the chief financial officer of the university. Wow. And I was pounding on the desk, you know, <laughs> the 60s, you know, this is you know, the hope of tomorrow, the youth uh, of tomorrow, or, uh, leaders of, uh, of the future. And what are you going to do about this? And he looked me dead in the eye and said, I don't have a clue. And I, in a, in a complete fit of, uh, of conceit, said, well, I can do as good a job as you can do and said, all right. This is important. I should prepare myself because I'm going to go into this field and I want to sit at that desk and answer students who come to see me better than he just answered me. 
So I did some research. This is in the days way before Google, so you had to actually talk to people <laughs> uh, about this. And I found out what CFOs of the day did well and what they did not do well. And I determined that for all of the things that they did well, I needed to do well too. And for all of the things that they did not do well, I needed to develop skills in order to do those. So I found out that most of the CFOs of the day were accountants who were very narrow in their breadth by just knowing about accounting. They didn't write well. They didn't speak well. You'd never put them in front of an audience. And they weren't particularly well read. So I said to myself, okay, what kind of undergraduate major do you need to have that would develop these skills? I settled on English literature hmm. because it would force me to write. It would force me to read. It would force me to develop positions and be able to articulate and defend a proposition in front of others. And I uh, took coursework in music and music performance because I was a pretty fair singer and uh, still am a classical trained singer and theater. So that I could stand up in front of people. And I was a member for many years of the North Carolina Reader's Theater and would go all around the state doing Reader's Theater productions. So I could get used to standing in front of people and uh, performing, if you will, or or not being uh, concerned or, or nervous in front of a large crowd. I also knew that you have to have the certificate. You've got to have that something that says that you know about business and finance. So I, my plan was to have an undergraduate degree in English literature with all of these other performance parts as well, and then go to MBA school, which I did. I went to uh, Duke University for MBA school so that I could get my ticket punched, if you will, and then began my career in higher education by working first at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, from there to Duke University, from Duke University to the University of Virginia, and from the University of Virginia to Agnes Scott College in Atlanta, where I was uh, the uh, chief financial officer. I was the vice president for business and finance there. And from there to Elon University uh, in 1992. So that's kind of how I got into this business in a, in a fit of peak uh, over, <laughs> <laughs> over being treated uh, uh, with complete ignorance of what to do about a terrible situation for millions of students in the time. I'm still, I'm still in this because uh, it is um, gratifying in the same way that I hoped it would be. There are some things that I've learned from this story, this, uh, the, you know, how did I come to be in this that uh, I think were important. Today, I don't think you could do what I did back then and follow the same path because today there are so many opportunities to do other things that was, uh, that people change careers as we know many times and in many different ways. Uh, and so it would be unusual, I think in today's world to find somebody who chose something at the beginning of their college career and saw it through. I, I just think it would be less likely to see that uh, in these days. But that's what I did. That is a very 
dramatic and fascinating story, Gerald. Thank you for sharing that. But it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. Like, how did you get your scholarship money back? How were you able to stay at the school? I didn't get it back uh, until two years later when the Supreme Court finally said, no, President Nixon, you cannot do that. You must release the funds. <laughs> uh, and by then, I had already gotten three jobs, and I, w- I worked my way through college. That's how I, I continued. Good for you. Good for yeah. you. Well, that is that is an absolutely fascinating story. Thank you for sharing that. So you've been at Elon for over 20 years, which, again, is a very impressive tenure. What changes have you experienced there over that time? Well, significant changes. Uh, when I came, the institution was... Um, in, in my estimation, poised to really take off and do well. We had um, a pedagogy of experiential learning that showed great results uh, for the students. We had a, uh, an institution that had a mindset of uh, student-centric uh, culture instead of any other culture, faculty or staff or, or alumni-centric in those ways. And I could tell that it was really going to take off. And when I came here, we had um, a, a much smaller campus than we do now. We've grown by at least 500% uh, in terms of the, the size of the campus. Wow. We, we've more than, uh, more than doubled, uh, almost tripled the, uh, the size uh, of the student body here as well. All of the imprimaturs of of success in terms of rankings and that sort of thing have have followed along as well. We were very um, uh, grateful and challenged to be able to host a chapter of Phi Beta Kappa on the campus, which is a a signal event for any campus as well. During the time that I've been here, so it's a it's a a terrific upward uh, story that was captured by uh, higher education writer George Keller in a book about Elon. It detailed uh, the, the sort of rise of a small college, private college in North Carolina to a one on a national and international stage, which uh, was gratifying well, uh, as well. So lots of change, lots of externally visible change in just the size of the campus and the way it uh, way it looks and the way it operates but uh, the core values are are still here at the institution as as I saw them when I first came in 1992 how would you say you have changed in your role over the past 20 years there well um, one of the things that I think every uh, chief business officer would uh, likely agree is that you never thought you would be doing fill-in-the-blank here uh, when you first started in this career. You have found that the scope of what you do as a chief business officer has just expanded exponentially from entrepreneurship sorts of uh, initiatives that uh, you might not have ever thought that you would uh, deal with, public-private deals you engage in with the university, uh, the college or the university and any other public or private issues. Some simple things like who knew you would have to become an expert in public health for the bird flu? <laughs> uh, uh, n- nobody knew that you would have to learn that and know what it meant. Crisis management uh, as well. Uh, I mean, many institutions are dealing with uh, various uh, crises on their campus and and the chief business officer becomes part of that 
crisis management team as well over time. So I think the um, chief business officer's need for breadth uh, as well as depth is no more uh, no more apparent than it is today. You, you've got to be able to ha- be flexible and have breadth in order to do this job today because it just demands it. Talk a little bit about what you are most excited about in your role today at Elon. Well, it's the same thing that I've been excited about, uh, about my uh, position as the chief uh, financial officer, chief business officer from the time I first uh, was one, uh, I guess that would have been in 1984. Uh, and that is this, that every hour or sometimes even more frequently, a different thing walks in my door, <laughs> a different topic, a different issue. I'm not doing the same thing every day. And I can't predict, uh, as some, uh, places might, uh, that Tuesday, uh, November the 14th in 2023, this is what I'll be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I find that uh, just fascinating and important for me because I have a character flaw. And my character flaw is that I am easily bored. And so this job is the cure for that. <laughs> Never a dull moment, huh? That's right. And and um, I'm I'm naturally inquisitive, I think. So that uh, as new things come walking in the uh, in the door, I, I'm very interested in, to know about what that is and how it works and what uh, an answer, if it was a question, what an answer might be towards addressing it. I noticed that you are a national speaker on a variety of topics, and I wonder if you have any reflections as you're um, doing these talks and interacting with your colleagues if you have any reflections about what you hear from other CBOs about what they're struggling with. Well, yes. Um, I, I think um, the struggle that many have um, is with, I guess you could say it um, uh, writ large, internal politics. That usually rears its head when there are lack of resources and there is a contest over how those resources are to be used. That will cause stress and stress in an organization, stress between people, and uh, needs to be resolved uh, in order to be successful with whatever initiatives you have. So uh, that that some element of that is what I hear most uh, most frequently. Occasionally, you'll hear um, uh, I, I will hear as well uh, some things about uh, how to manage up as well as managing mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, what sort of uh, tips uh, for those. And then generally, uh, ultimately, it's a question of what is in my best interest for a long-term career? Should I stay where I am here or should I go somewhere else? And what, what, is, that, what is that I should be looking for uh, in in these areas, so that generally, when you finish speaking and you come down off the right. off the podium and people are talking, you know, eventually, one of those three things emerges from from most of the uh, CBOs with whom I speak. What advice do you give about managing up and about managing politics? Well, a couple of things that I I have found to be true. One is the value of transparency, and that is that historically, for example, the budget is the province of the CFO. 
and the desire on in many cases because it's a complicated beast to hold all of that information close uh, and, and in fact very close and it's been my been my experience particularly uh, at this institution uh, as well that if you share information appropriately but still share it uh, with a group of folk uh, and put before them the uh, right information in the right context and say, now, I, w- I need to draw a, a conclusion from this information, they will pretty much draw the same conclusion you will, given goodwill in the situation. Y- you earn all sorts of uh, benefits by being as transparent as you can be instead of being shot with slings and arrows when you don't. So the value of transparency, uh, I think, is a, a, uh, an important thing. And the second thing that I think is really important is the chief academic officer and the chief business officer need to be glued at the hip. They need to be on the same page and supportive of the same things. And the easiest way to do that is to be both of uh, parties, to be totally committed to the institution's strategic plan and the resource allocation for that strategic plan. Because it becomes an easy thing uh, when both of you have, one, had a hand in building the strategic plan, and two, are both committed to the strategic plan for the institution. When there are resource decisions to be made, it's sort of simple. Well, what is our strategic plan demand? Mm. And you personally don't have an, uh, a, uh, an argument with it because you're supportive of that. You believe in that. The provost uh, or chief academic officer doesn't have a problem with it because he or she supports it. They believe in it. If you and the provost or, or chief academic officer are glued at the hip over these things, your life will be incredibly better. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Is that something that you see that does not happen as frequently as you think it needs to? I think so. And I think there are reasons for that. Uh, sometimes there are cultural reasons uh, that are that get in the way for that. And and truthfully, just all sorts of reasons. There may be personal reasons, there may be historic reasons, uh, or cultural reasons, as I say. If you can keep that as your goal and, and move toward it, and ultimately, hopefully achieve it, uh, life is way better, way better. <laughs> And uh, so I've, I've, I've found that in, in terms of managing up and managing sideways mm. as well as managing down uh, with those things, because the president is obviously, obviously key in this as well. But the president is looking over a, a cabinet of many, many people on the cabinet. And uh, the president is going to want as as his or her. Uh, chief operating officers, uh, the chief academic officer and the chief business officer to be on the same page and not to be warring between the two of them and lobbing hand grenades into each other's trenches here like a World War I uh, uh, battle scene. And those uh, presidencies that have that sort of mutual uh, respect and understanding uh, are ever so much more successful. Anything else you'd like to share today, Gerald, that I've neglected to ask? Well, one of the things that I, I think um, is an important thing, and, and uh, it's incumbent on those, I think, that have been here uh, in, in this uh, CBO role for any length of time, is the value of mentorship 
each of us has a mentorship story, no doubt, and which explains how we got from where we were to where we are now. And I certainly have had uh, a, a very important mentor in my uh, in my career as well. And uh, we get so busy, we forget that we need to pass it on and, and to perform those roles, uh, those mentorship roles for others. Mm. Uh, it's easy to do that when you have someone who is a direct report um, and, and you think about it once you think about it. But across divisions within the institution and into other uh, other institutions as well for other chief business officers or aspiring chief business officers, I think is really, really important to uh, to keep that in mind, because we in higher education don't hoard all of our knowledge as some sort of uh, trade secret. Right. And we share our information for the betterment of of the uh, of the entire educational enterprise, and we as chief business officers shouldn't be immune from that impulse. How do you put yourself out there in a way that? How do you reach out to p- potential mentees? I guess is the question. And you said, you know, direct subordinates are that's an easy one. But if it's if there's no direct subordinates, how might you how might you go about that? Two two ways. One is a formal structured way, and the, another is a more informal way. I'll deal with the informal first. Um, just the very sorts of things that you had asked me earlier about speaking um, on uh, topics uh, across uh, the country here. Um, you inevitably will have people come up, ask you questions, and then will uh, uh, will be wanting to, and sometimes actually will ask, "Well, could I keep in contact with you over mm. some, several things?" And that's a that's a, a a way that you can do this by not being uh, closed to that and by being open to that. And um, a lot of the a lot of times, people want to talk to you and just have you hear what they're thinking and like a good psychiatrist, you know, just you stand there and stroke your chin and go, Hmm, well, how do you, <laughs> how do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- they will work it out in, uh, among the, uh, by themselves, mm-hmm. uh, just with that, uh, with that effort. So I, I think be- being out there and being open to, uh, that eventuality is really important. Then the other way is Nukubo has just started a mentorship program in which uh, mentors are paired with mentees uh, for a full year. Um, the mentees have to apply through a process. And I think this is a really terrific uh, program. I've, uh, I'm engaged in that program now. And um, I think this is really a terrific program to, in a more formal way, help uh, those who would like to have a mentor to help them really chew on some difficult problems at their own institution and get perspectives from others. It's just a, 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 a terrific, terrific resource. And uh, I applaud Nakubo for doing it because it's so important. Thank you so much, Gerald, for your time today and for sharing your fascinating stories and just a few of your insights that you've gained over the years. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It was fun and, um, and good luck to you. Thanks. You can find out more about Gerald and today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. 
Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks and iTunes so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Gerald and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of CBO Speaks. This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education.